You're listening to the Alberta Advantage on CJSW 90.9 FM on Treaty 7 territory in Calgary. My name is Kate Jacobson, and I produce the Alberta Advantage, where we offer analysis on Albertan and Canadian history and politics from a perspective that doesn't always get a lot of airtime. Hello and welcome to a mini episode of the Alberta Advantage. My name is Kate Jacobson and I'm pleased to be joined over the phone by Dr. Shane Gunster, who is an associate professor in the School of Communications at Simon Fraser University and a research associate with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Shane, thank you for joining me here on the Alberta Advantage. Thanks very much for having me. Really appreciate it. You recently wrote a piece in the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives magazine, The Monitor, and it's called Extractive Populism and the Future of Canada. And populism, especially coupled with this strange kind of petro-nationalism, has been emerging uh, in Alberta and Canada. And these are really recurring topics uh, on our podcast, so we're very interested to read it. Could you tell us a little bit about your concept of extractive populism and what its major claims are? This research really came out of, uh, or this idea really came out of research that I did about a year ago, looking at the communication strategies and tactics and content of pro-oil social media groups, largely on Facebook, and looking in particularly at, at what are they saying, how are they trying to represent extractivism, how are they trying to shape the public opinion of Canadians about uh, the extractive industries and the future of extractivism, especially in the, in the broader context of the climate crisis and uncertainty with respect to uh, the future of the oil and gas industry globally. And so we looked at uh, a number of social media groups, and uh, we identified a number of key themes which was coming up over and over and over again, which seemed to dominate those communications. And uh, three themes in particular uh, were were important, and uh, we identified those as constituting the core of extractive populism. So the first theme is... Uh, consistently, or the first claim, I should say, is to represent extractivism as a public good, as something which is in the interests of all Canadians, that benefits all Canadians. And this is rhetoric that we saw coming up over and over again in the groups. It's rhetoric that we see in our media. It's rhetoric that governments in support of extractivism like to propagate. So uh, one of the examples that I talked about in the piece was the Keep Canada Working campaign, which was brought in by Rachel Notley's government in Alberta to promote the Trans Mountain Expansion Project, not so much to people in Alberta, but to people in British Columbia, and in particular to people in the rest of the country, and there to frame extractivism as something which is really done in the interests of all Canadians to fund uh, public services, to provide taxation revenues to government, to provide high-paying jobs, and In that context, extractivism is reframed as something which is done in the interest of all rather than what it actually is, which is a the way that that it's organized in Canada uh, as a capitalist enterprise, something which is predominantly oriented to serving the interests of large corporations and their their, uh, shareholders. And the revenues, there are some benefits that go to governments, the the federal and and provincial government largely in in Alberta, but really it's it's a capitalist project. But if you 
if you symbolically nationalize it, that, that, was, the, that was the term that, that we came up with, that, that really what, what's going on in these communications is a form of symbolic nationalization where this for-profit capitalist project is represented as if it had been nationalized. And as I'm sure I don't have to remind people in Alberta, the last time this uh, nationalization came up uh, in, in the uh, in the policy agenda with respect to the oil and gas industry was in the 1970s and 1980s in the uh, proposed national energy program. And the Alberta government and the oil and gas industry in Alberta were fierce, fierce uh, opponents of the idea that that you would nationalize Mm -hmm. this industry to benefit all Canadians. So they hated this idea of real nationalization. But as the uh, tar sands expanded and as the oil and gas industry in in the Alberta government realized, hey, we actually need to get the rest of the country on board with this industry because it's expanding and it's expansion means that we need more pipelines and pipelines means we need to get all of Canada on board with this. They turn to these forms of symbolic nationalization where they represent this industry as uh, one that benefits all Canadians. So one of the things you mentioned in Claim 1 is this idea that the extraction of fossil fuels is the core of the Canadian economy. It benefits everyone. It's a public good, this symbolic nationalization. What is the utility of this to the fossil fuel industry? What do they get out of this type of symbolic nationalization? This is a misrepresentation of how the fossil fuel industries are actually organized in Canada. Mm-hmm. In Canada, the extractive industries are a capitalist enterprise, and they are predominantly oriented around serving the interests of large corporations and shareholders, many of, their sh- of those shareholders being foreign to Canada, right, uh, being um, global. And if you're looking to legitimate the extractive industries for Canadians, you need to find some way of essentially hiding that fact, of essentially trying to represent this as an industry which is good for everyone in Canada. Because the truth that the industry benefits a relatively concentrated elite, that many of those benefits flow offshore, isn't good if you're looking for if you're looking to improve the reputation of that industry with Canadians if you're looking for the support of Canadians for controversial projects such as building new pipelines such as expanding the operations of the tar sands in Alberta which people have become growingly aware of there are some significant adverse negative impacts those significant impacts including uh, negative impacts to the communities that live in those areas so significant local uh, ecological impacts to air quality and water quality and also um, more predominantly now the tar sands are a major contributor to climate change and to the climate crisis. And Canada has signed on to the Paris Accord, and, and uh, we have a certain set of commitments with other countries in the world to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Rising emissions from the oil and gas industry constitute a big problem there. So if you're looking for a way to distract people's attention from all of the negative impacts of the tar sands, and if you're looking to distract people's attention from the highly uneven distribution of benefits from the tar sands, then the rhetoric of what we call symbolic nationalization or misrepresenting this capitalist for-profit enterprise, then the rhetoric of symbolic nationalization 
is a really, really useful tool. And so what, what, what I would argue is that when the tar sands uh, and the oil and gas industry was first being ramped up in the 1970s and 1980s, the prospect of real nationalization through the National Energy Program was perceived as a huge threat by the oil and gas industry, by the provincial government in Alberta, and by much of the Alberta public. They hated the idea of nationalization. And at this time, Canada, in particular Ottawa, the government of Canada, was, was framed as the, as, the, uh, as the principal enemy of uh, Alberta. It was framed as a, as a real threat to the prosperity of the province and the, uh, the province's ability to control its natural resources. So one of the uh, phrases that came out of that of that time was let the eastern bastards freeze in the dark right mm-hmm. so that there was this very kind of anti uh, canadian uh, aspect uh, at that time but after uh, so that died down uh, as you know in the in the 1980s we elected a, a conservative government which got rid of the national energy program and people kind of forgot about the tar sands nationally for the next couple of decades and uh, in particular ralph klein came in and brought in this low royalty regime and basically ran up production of the tar sands as fast as possible. But at the, at the turn of the century, uh, in the early 2000s, the Alberta government, the Alberta oil industry realized that we need to get people on, we need to get Canada on board because all of this ramped up production means that we have to build new pipelines and new pipelines require approval from the federal government. And uh, how are we going to get that? Well, you know what? nationalization, symbolic nationalization that doesn't actually touch our corporate profits, that doesn't actually redistribute the income from the tar sands significantly across the country, but symbolic forms of nationalization, those are really, really useful. So industry really starts to wrap itself in the flag from 2005, 2006, 2007 onwards, when it realizes, hey, we need to get the country on board, and we increasingly have this legitimation problem where people are starting to wonder about this project, which is causing all of these negative environmental impacts. So symbolic nationalization um, offers itself as a really important strategy at that point. And we've really seen that ramp up over the last five years, I would say, in the aftermath of uh, the fights over, in particular, the Northern Gateway Pipeline. The, the, the failure of the federal government and the oil industry to secure approval and construction of the Northern Gateway Pipeline was, I think, a real wake-up call for industry and really uh, has led industry and industry supporters to shift into overdrive in terms of promoting the, 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 the interests of the oil and gas industry and trying to locate the oil and gas industry at the core of the Canadian economy. The second claim of extractive populism is that Extractive industries are under attack, and they are under attack by a small but highly vocal and powerful constellation of political forces. And I was wondering if you could kind of trace the origins of this rhetoric for us. It's, again, a really interesting story. When the National Energy Program was introduced in the 1970s and 1980s, Canada was the enemy. And that actually plays into a much older and deeper tradition of 
prairie populism that has been around on the prairies in Alberta, in Saskatchewan in particular, over the 20th century. And this was the idea that the hardworking farmers and workers of the prairies, small business people of the prairies, were essentially um, victimized, exploited by Laurentian elites, by big banks, by railway companies, by uh, big corporations uh, that were based in in Toronto, and uh, and that that there was this 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 conflict between those on the prairies and those who were seeking to unfairly exploit them. So this is this this kind of inside outside uh, dynamic has one that's been quite powerful in uh, in Alberta history in particular, and it's one that Alberta politicians have regularly drawn upon to knit the knit the people of Alberta into a into a particular core into into a into a particular self-understanding uh in which they see themselves as threatened by external forces uh whether those be uh, Laurentian Lorites uh in the in the 1930s populism whether that be um the government of Pierre Trudeau and Ottawa in the fights over the national energy program and then and and we saw this rhetoric come back very strongly in uh, the latter part of the Harper years, and in particular, in, in January of 2012, the former Minister of Natural Resources, Joe Oliver, he wrote an open letter. And in that open letter, he attacked what he described as foreign-funded radicals, uh, a loose coalition, I suppose, of, of environmentalists and other critics of the oil industry, who he argued were seeking to exploit the generosity of Canadian public review processes uh, to gum up the works for a whole wide variety of projects. And he argued that they were driven by essentially an anti-development agenda, that they were seeking to block any and all development of projects in Canada. Um, And the... So this was actually picking up on rhetoric which had been um, had been in place or had been um, uh, unfolding in Alberta since about again this 2005 2006 2007 was when you start to see it and it was driven by the um, or it was initially driven by the activities of Vivian Krauss who's someone who your uh, listeners have probably heard of before. But Vivian Krauss started out as, um, she was an employee of the aquaculture industry uh, out here. She essentially worked for um, fish farms. Mm -hmm. And she came up with this thesis that the opposition to fish farming was being funded by U.S. interests, right? That this was not a domestic a domestic form of of criticism or domestic a uh, homegrown uh, uh, form of um, of critique, but this was something that was actually funded by uh, forces outside. Well, people in Alberta who were uh, supporters of industry looked at this and thought, "Well, hey, this is actually this this storyline makes sense." And so Krauss then turned her attention to the anti tar sands campaigns, and she developed the same kind of thesis there. She argued that most of the funding for these groups was coming from outside. So this this was an argument that uh, was circulating in the very pro-oil uh, media in Alberta in 2010, 2011. And then in 2012, Joe Oliver picks up on this, and he takes this argument 
national. He essentially nationalizes this argument. So we no longer have the enemy of the oil and gas industry being the federal government, mm-hmm. being big banks. Uh, they're now on side with the oil and gas industry. So you need a new enemy. So the new enemy becomes, in Joe Oliver's telling, uh, environmental groups, and in particular environmental groups who are being orchestrated by um, interests in the United States. So hence this term, foreign-funded radicals. Mm-hmm. And there's a real attempt to, to suggest that any criticism of pipelines or tar sands or extractivism more broadly is anti-Canadian, right? So you have the development of petronationalism. Petronationalism needs an enemy, and that enemy becomes this essentially boogeyman of foreign-funded radicals, paid protesters, as, as mm-hmm. the language goes. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think some of the most dangerous parts of this conspiratorial thinking and this conspiratorial framing of opponents to extractivism in Canada. Yeah, well, it's a it's a really toxic discourse, mm-hmm. and it's a really toxic discourse, especially on social media. Uh, social media tends to encourage the swarming of individuals. So let me let me tell you about one one particular example. There was a uh, there was a Greenpeace protest which was being um, which was done against the trans mountain expansion project where a couple of greenpeace protesters had climbed atop of uh, some drilling equipment uh, fairly conventional greenpeace kind of protest they mm-hmm. go up there they come down a couple of days later anyways i was watching this protest unfold on social media and it was a couple of women who had uh, chained themselves to this uh, piece of drilling equipment or had climbed this this piece of drilling equipment and the level of violent, misogynistic rhetoric that was unleashed towards these women was unbelievable. It was uh, horrifying. It, was, it, it runs utterly counter to traditions of civility and respectful political dialogue that I think most Canadians value. And a big part of fueling that is this perception or misperception, uh, this claim that women like these are traitors to the country and they are actively seeking to undermine the interests and the prosperity and the well-being of hardworking Canadian families. This petro-nationalist rhetoric, which makes the claim that what is good for the country is under attack by a small, um, very dangerous group of people who are essentially traitors to their country, can be used to license or is used to license this violence and fury and anger and this unleashing of these sentiments, which is then directed towards people who really have the best interests of the country at heart and who are exercising uh, a tradition of civil disobedience that uh, most Canadians would would uh, respect, would agree with. And I think much of it is licensed by this sort of extractive populist narrative, which positions extractivism as this unalloyed public good, this great thing, and simultaneously says that this great thing, which is putting food on your table, which is paying for your, your schools and your hospitals, is being sabotaged by this small group of traders who are being funded by shadowy global and and or American interests. It's a very toxic, uh, toxic narrative. So the third claim of extractive populism really follows from claims one and two. And that claim is that 
political mobilization is necessary to defend this national interest from the sinister forces that threaten it. Could you talk a little bit about some of the players in this political mobilization? Sure, yeah. So that's another uh, really interesting thing. So if if we look at how the Canadian oil and gas industry has tended to get its way over the last century, certainly over the last 30 years, it's tended to use a variety of fairly conventional tools of corporate power, which include behind uh, closed doors lobbying of government officials, which include mass market advertising and public relations campaigns, and which, um, which include a highly sympathetic corporate media. So our, our, our uh, corporate media, especially in Western Canada, are highly sympathetic to the oil and gas industry mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, regularly feature a variety of columnists which uh, are essentially making the arguments for uh, the expansion of extractivism and how great the oil and gas industry is. And that has historically been a pretty good tool for them in terms of getting what they want. But as I said, the recent controversies over the last five years with respect to pipelines and the remarkable success of environmental groups, local communities, and indigenous nations in opposing this development and actually stopping this development really made people in the oil and gas industry and their supporters anxious and worried that these traditional tools of corporate power were no longer as effective in securing what they needed in order to expand the extractive industries. And so they started looking at new models of political mobilization that were ironically, uh, at some level anyways, about emulating their opponents. So they saw what what the environmental groups were doing with social media, and they thought, well, we need to do the same kind of thing. We need to find uh, in, we need to find particular constituencies of supporters who can be mobilized in the same way that our opponents are mobilizing their supporters to go to uh, hearings, for example, into pipelines uh, and uh, make very vociferous arguments against them. We need to mobilize supporters who will actively engage on social media, who will actively engage in the public sphere to defend the oil and gas industry, who will actively uh, lobby their own political representatives, who will actively get involved in the campaign. And so uh, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers in particular, in uh, 2013, 2014, they started to move in this direction. This, this, in addition to those traditional tools of corporate power, they realized that hey, we need to actually mobilize our own, uh, uh, our own particular constituencies. And so, one of the ways in which they've done this is that they've they've started this campaign called Canada's Energy Citizens, mm-hmm. and this was essentially built off of a blueprint that they got from the American oil and gas industry. So in particular, they, uh, they invited some people from the American Petroleum Institute up to talk about their energy citizens program, which they had, got, which they had, um, uh, they had started up in 2009. So they had been running for about five years, and they got a bunch of tips on, on, on how to do that. And it was really about actively targeting the employees of the oil and gas industry, people in resource-dependent towns, conservatives. In other words, those who are most likely to think favorably of the oil and gas industry. The idea was to mobilize them 
to connect with their friends, their neighbors, their communities, and become far more active and aggressive in defending the oil and gas industry uh, in the public sphere in Canada. Now, this, you know, this is sometimes, um, uh, and, and sometimes rightly so, uh, described as, as astroturfing. Mm-hmm. I think there are aspects of this which definitely fit that model. There's no, there, there's no um, question that there are significant resources that are going into these kinds of mobilizations and these kinds of campaigns from the oil and gas industry, from wealthy individuals who are in favor of this sort of thing. However, I think we have to be careful to avoid simply writing it off as astroturfing, something that is entirely produced at a co- in, in corporate boardrooms. Um, because I think one of the reasons why extractive populism has proven so uh, so effective in an Alberta context uh, in particular is that it does it does resonate and connect with a, a part of the population which is definitely anxious and concerned and unsure about what the future holds. So you do have, in the case of Alberta, a significant number of people who are definitely dependent on the oil and gas industry. And so um, what 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 this third aspect of extractive populism does is it says to those people, if you value your community, if you value your job, if you like your way of life, if you value the prosperity that the oil and gas industry has brought to you and your family, you need to become politically active. You need to mobilize. You need mm-hmm. to join with your neighbors because the only way to defend this extractivism as the public good is through politics. It's not something that will be guaranteed by the market, by uh, the private sector. It's something which is politically contested. And if you don't get involved, your opponents, this small group of foreign-funded radicals, are going to shut things down. It's really trying to, I mean, at a certain level, the name says it all, right? Canada's energy citizens. They're really trying to um, reconstruct the identity of people who are connected with the oil and gas industry around this much broader sense of citizenship, that part of that is not just going to work every day. It's not just enjoying uh, the benefits that come from employment in that sector, but you actually have to become politically mobilized or this, um, this way of life could disappear. In fact, public opinion polls suggest that most Canadians are quite interested in uh, and supportive of getting off of the fossil fuel industry, of moving into a new renewable economy, of taking measures to address a climate crisis that is becoming increasingly severe. Uh, But if you have these moments of political mobilization that can be amplified through media through both conventional news media and then also through the various pro-oil media groups, it can create the illusion that most Canadians are actively uh, in favor of the expansion of the oil and gas industry. So it's it's a it's a mm-hmm. so it's so it's not purely astroturf. There's a there's a variety of different elements that are that are involved uh, there. If extractive populism is the political lay of the land, and I think you've made a really good argument for that being true, how best can we challenge it? 
Yeah, that's that's really the $64,000 question, isn't it? <laughs> I, I think um, there's a number of things to do. I think one of the most important things, and it's something that there are a variety of groups, so the group that I'm, or one of the groups that I'm involved with, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, is regularly putting out good analysis, which shows that the benefits of extractivism really are highly uneven and highly unequal. It's not a public good that benefits everyone. It really is um, something which flows in a highly uh, uneven and unequal fashion. And so that is, I think, a really important part of challenging this otherwise pervasive notion that the energy industry is a public good, that the Canadian economy rests upon the oil and gas industry. I think people often dramatically over-represent the extent to which the Canadian economy is dependent upon this. I think that people also, and this is especially true in Alberta, um, are misinformed about the extent to which the oil and gas industry is actually into the future going to keep generating high-paying jobs. I think that the oil and gas industry as a private enterprise is continuously engaged in trying to reduce its costs, in particular its labor costs. And so even as the oil and gas industry remains profitable, the employment numbers are not coming back because automation in particular is going to displace a lot of those jobs. So I think those are the kinds of arguments that are really, really important to 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 make to deconstruct this this idea or to or to to um, unpack this this claim that uh, the oil and gas industry benefits everyone when when it really doesn't. This isn't all our country should be about. Our country should be structured around a different set of values, which Canadians actually do hold at the core of who we are as a country and the kinds of mm-hmm. things that we prioritize: compassion generosity, um, good public policy such as Medicare, diversity, multiculturalism, respect for others, uh, finally trying to get a handle on the darker uh, aspects of our history through reconciliation and through constructing just relationships with Indigenous people, embracing a new renewable economy, dealing with the climate crisis. These are all things that I think we need to put at the core of uh, of a, a progressive vision of who we are as a country. Dr. Shane Gunster, thank you so much for joining us here on the Alberta Advantage to talk about extractive populism. We really appreciate it. Makes no difference where I go. You're the best hometown I know. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can hear a longer version of this episode and many more on albertaadvantagepod.com. So long, Calgary.